Hi there, I'm Danny Jones. Welcome to the podcast. Here on this podcast, my co-host Ella Gilbert and I have conversations with people whose work intersects with climate in some way. Apologies for the less than stellar audio quality. I'm on the road. I'm actually at the University of Washington and the School of Oceanography. I'm looking out the window right now at some water. It's a hot day and uh, the university has very graciously given me a temporary desk. So I'm coming to you from that temporary desk. I don't have my nice microphone or anything to record the introduction with. So yeah, apologies about that. I'm really excited to bring you this conversation with John Robson. I've known John a while. John is a principal research fellow at the University of Reading. He joins us to discuss his work on the North Atlantic Climate System Integrated Study, which is known as AXIS for short. That's a project that I was on as well, and I know him partly through that, partly before that. We just kind of ran in similar scientific uh, circles, I guess you could say, in the UK. So, uh, yeah, we talked about a lot of different things. We talked about the AXIS project. We talked about Emily Matthews and the new HPMTF compound a little bit, which we have a whole separate episode of this podcast on that. We talked about the Atlantic Meridional Overturning Circulation and whether that's declining or not. That's another topic we deal with pretty regularly on this podcast. Uh, John is also heavily involved with the Wishbone Project on Decadal Variability. We talked about that and the Snapdragon Project, which is a sister project of Wishbone. We talked about what it's like to be a new PI. That's uh, an experience that John is going through. What's it like to be a first-time principal investigator? And also we talked about things like parenthood and science, John's experiences with shared parental leave in the UK, and the just general challenges of moving locations in academia and how big of a feature that is uh, in in our lives. Okay, so yeah, I guess uh, that's it, and let's go ahead and get into this conversation as quickly as we can. Uh, thanks for, for downloading, listening. You can follow the podcast at Climate SciPod. You can get updates there, and you can follow John on Twitter at John I. Robson. You can find him there, and uh, Ella Gilbert, as always, is Dr. Underscore Gilbs with a Z. Okay, yeah, I think that's all I need to mention. Let's go ahead and get into this conversation with John Robson. Here we go. Yeah, yes, you, you doing all right? How's it going? Yeah, all right. You know how things are, 2022 and all that. But yeah, not too bad. How, are you how talking are you? about how life feels impossible and nothing, <laughs> you can't do anything? <laughs> yeah, kind still, of. Um, yeah. And it kind of feels, it still feels a bit like every day is exactly the same. Not quite, it's definitely different now, but it still feels a bit like, um, you know, been working at home now for like, mostly working at home for like two years. I finally went into the office actually for the first time this year, last week. So yeah, it's been a bit strange. Um, it's very empty. You're at Reading, aren't you? I am, yeah. You're no longer at Reading, Ella. No, that... no, I'm, I've, I've gone back to Bass now. But um, yeah. yeah, I went to Reading like maybe four times in the entirety of my entire year and a half there. <laughs> and the last time was the day before my contract ended and still no one's there. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah, it's pretty weird. Yeah, and the last couple of years have been really weird. So, yeah, exactly. I mean, 
I, obviously, we never met her though when you were there, and you know, I probably would have done in normal times. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, at least I might have seen you, like you know, across the coffee room or something. But um, yeah. but yeah, we. I finally met. Yeah, I've had a few people start with me over the last couple of years. I finally met one of them in in person last week. Um, Amazing. So yeah, it's been weird. Mm, um, weird times. Yeah. And then I was just about to tell Ella a possibly boring story about how my desk broke, my work desk. And, you know, if you're at work, work, you can ask her some help. Like, hey, could somebody come by and could somebody who knows about, like, is good at this stuff, like, come help me with my desk and fix it and fix, help me fix the equipment and stuff. And, and they would. Um, but, yeah, if it's in your house, it's your problem. you got to figure it out. So, yeah. like, I've got one of these Ikea desks and it broke, um, had to get a replacement part, but they didn't have the original replacement part because they've shifted things. And it, it just destroyed my whole work week, basically. <laughs> like it, yeah, well, I didn't have a place to spread out and stuff and actually like do my proper job. And just like, well, I guess this is what I'm doing this week. I guess I'm just like fixing my desk. Great. Is I'm it one of those desks that goes up and down or is it? No, no. no it's, okay. uh, so it's not it's, even an exciting desk. <laughs> No, it's not that exciting. It just, uh, the clamp type mechanism, it's got like a bookshelf and then a desk that kind of comes off of that bookshelf. Um, so it's the clamp of that sort of, the clamp that attaches the actual table. Anyway, that broke, that's that's boring. But my point just being like, yeah, with the, I kind of like homeworking for, for focus. Like if I'm going to do focused work and obviously you can have your own coffee and your own food and stuff, and that can be really nice. But for stuff like that, it's like, yep, this is my problem. I got to sort this out. Mm. Um, and that's, uh, it, it's fine. I, it just, I did it, but it ate most of my week. But yeah, I'm glad you're here. Thanks for coming. Well, thanks for inviting me. Yeah. And I guess, yeah, Danny, we, we, I guess the last time I spoke to you was probably about a year ago, actually. So I haven't seen you for a while so it's good to see you yeah again. yeah likewise. <laughs> likewise yeah 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 gosh has it been a year no that's right because i i was on this access um you know this the the kind of management committee for a while now and that was interesting that was kind of a bit of a i don't want to say behind the scenes because it's not like it was secret or closed or anything it was just this was an example of like how to manage a big project like that like how to manage access Maybe we should say what Axis is, or or was, I guess. Now it's it's done. It's finished as of not too long ago. Yeah. Do you want to talk about that? Do you want to say, like, yeah, I can talk about it. Yeah, I guess it did. It finish last Friday. In fact, I think. Um, yeah. So mm. Axis stands for what does it stand for? The North Atlantic Climate System Integrated Study. Um, yes. Axis. Um, not you did Naxis. it! Hooray! I did it! Yeah. Um, <laughs> well done. Yeah, and that that was that was quite a long haul project in the end. So it turned out it was supposed to be a five year NERC multi center program, mm-hmm. um, but it was extended for a year. So it's it's been kind of the main thing I've been working on for the last six years, which is a long time actually. Um, yeah. So so in, in lots of ways, I'm I'm glad it's over. In and in many ways, <laughs> I kind of you know it's a bit worrying to think, oh, what am I going to do next without without access being around because it's been around for so long yeah. but yeah yeah it was good so i mean do you want me to say a bit about what it was working on sure yeah absolutely yeah so it's so the idea was so the integrated study bit was essentially it was kind of a multidisciplinary program to understand recent kind of 
variability in the North Atlantic climate system, basically. So it was, it was atmosphere, ocean, um, sea ice, and kind of atmospheric composition. Mm-hmm. So it was really broad, but it was good. It was good to kind of have that multidisciplinary aspect sometimes well yeah. often in in science it can be get too siloed and of, obviously we were mainly thinking about the north atlantic so we were si- still siloed in that way but um yeah it was amazing to kind of get that very broad uh, view yeah i really liked the uh, composition part of it for me that was a unique element of having atmospheric chemists talk about aerosol distributions and you know other emissions and how that can affect the heat distribution in the ocean and the atmospheric circulation. I thought that was a really, a really cool part of it. I wasn't directly involved with, with too much of that. I did have some interactions with the atmospheric composition folks, but yeah, I think that's one of the things that made it, made it unique. And there must still be loads to do on that. A while ago on the show, we talked to um, somebody who worked on the, the new compound that was kind of discovered and worked on like while Axis was running. It's got a kind of long acronym, HPMFT or something like that. Yes. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't think I asked me what then. it is. Uh, yeah, I have no yeah. idea. <laughs> uh, and that was, that was cool. That was a few episodes ago. So, yeah, it, it involved lots of research centers, uh, the British Antarctic Survey, the National Center for Atmospheric Science, uh, lots of others that I'm going to leave, leave out accidentally here. We don't have to list, list them all. You, you know, you can go to the web. There's still a website you can go to and check it out. Yeah. Do you want to... Talk about like your role within that. I mean, we mentioned that we were both on this management team, which was sort of the structural part of it. That's the kind of like um, you have deliverables and you'd see, are we getting to those deliverables? Are we, are we reaching those? Are there any uh, gaps in communication that we need to help? Are there resource gaps we need to address? Are there people who aren't talking to each other who should be talking to each other? That sort of high level stuff. Um, so we did that together. And I, and I know you were really active on that management side of it, but you were also, you did a lot of science in it too. So can you speak to kind of your whole involvement with that but on both sides, both the science and the management? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah. So I, I've had lots of roles with, during Axis. Um, so I started off actually, I was, um, what was that? I can't even remember the, the, my, my sort of title. It was like the science program manager or something. Hmm. I never really worked out what that was. <laughs> um so i had had various kind of roles i was yeah so this kind of management team we called it the axis Mm -hmm. core team yeah and so part of it was about you know facilitating that core team of management initially um and then also kind of supposedly having this kind of very broad view over the whole project uh, which was a big project so there was quite a lot of to keep on on top of like you say so lots of yeah, and so a lot of it was kind of not very exciting, shall we say? It was like about how to come up with mechanisms for reporting and kind of yeah, and sort of stuff like that, um, which was fine. Um, but yeah, it's not overly exciting. And then kind of as time went on, I kind of yeah, I you know things move around, and I became the um, what did I become? I became the the theme leader for synthesis, and then the the atmospheric climate theme leader. And then, kind of the co- the chair of the core team itself. Um, mm. Yeah, so that was kind of very kind of operational, and that's you know yeah. that that kind of side of stuff has to be done, and it's it's fun to be involved with, although it can take a lot of time, obviously, like um, and a lot of headspace. That's the thing it takes up mm. the most, or my headspace. Maybe other people are better at it, but you always have this bit of your mind which is going, 
oh, I've forgotten to do this thing. <laughs> oh, there's, mm. there's this other stuff I need to do. And Organising anything has that effect. It just takes up so much mental back bandwidth in the background that it's just like juggling inside yeah. your head the whole time. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'm glad you said that. I think I'm kind of guilty of kind of assuming that those sort of tasks won't take that much energy and bandwidth for me. And then I get surprised, like, wait, I spent all day scheduling meetings. What? <laughs> What happened and it can yeah it can drain your energy let's talk about the minutia of the organization for the next hour and a half <laughs> yeah <laughs> no, not really please no <laughs> oh, <laughs> come on <laughs> my internet's uh, terrible <laughs> oh no my god <laughs> my connection's wow. dropping for some That's <laughs> no but you're right you got to do it it's necessary how about the science stuff what kind of fun what kind of science stuff were you involved with or that came out of it or do you, do you want to talk about? Yeah. So there was, yeah, it's been a lot of stuff. So yeah, I should say, so uh, I guess at least initially half my time was supposed to be management and then half the time was supposed to be science. Um, so yeah. And, and I worked on several, it's hard to remember all the stuff that I've worked on over the years because it has been quite a long project. Uh, but the thing we've been working on most recently is like, um, how anthropogenic aerosols can affect the North Atlantic. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's been a big kind of focus on that. And that was, like you say, Danny, it was kind of a, like a nice part of Axis is that there was this, um, you know, this broad kind of view, the atmosphere, ocean, and kind of composition side of stuff as well. Um, and so we've we've been doing quite a lot on that. And I've been working particularly on on the AMOC, so the Atlantic Meridional Overturning Circulation, how that's changed um, in kind of CMIP-6 historical runs, um, the reasons why it's changed and, and kind of whether we believe it, I guess. Um, so one of the fun things about uh, CMIP-6, so the sixth climate model intercomparison project, is that the AMOC, which is this kind of system of currents, which moves heat around in the North Atlantic, basically. So it moves heat northward into the North Atlantic. Um, so that actually increased in the historical simulations, which it's which was kind of new in the previous versions of CMIP iterations. It either went down or was kind of flat. Hmm. And we've known for a long time that there's been this interplay uh, between the forcing, the greenhouse gases, which kind of drive a weakening of the of the overturning um and a, a relative cooling of the north atlantic and then the the aerosols which kind of keep the keep well stop that from happening basically they they drive a, a temporary increase um yeah and in cmip 6 basically that that aerosol effect kind of wins out in the historical simulations so it it increases over the yeah from 1850 to about 1980 or so um, it increases. It gets the circulation gets stronger. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Yeah, mm. and it's something that we don't really have a lot of direct measurements of that up until pretty recently with the you know various arrays with like the rapid array and the OSNAP array as they're called. You know these two sets of instruments that just measure the. I say just as if it's simple. It's not simple, but they measure the you know, current. And as far as I understand, and you can tell me if I'm, I'm wrong, uh, this is my understanding from the summary talk that we just saw a little while ago, the kind of final access meeting. Uh, my understanding is there's still not like a super clear trend in the observations that we have. Uh, 
we're starting to get a clear seasonal cycle because we now have enough years that we can put together nice statistics for a seasonal cycle. But that at present, there's still not modern, uh, directly observed evidence for like a slowdown or a speed up of the AMOC. Does that sound right? Yeah, that's pretty pretty much it. So the longest direct observations of the AMOC we have for these rapid array observations is about, well, almost 20 years. I think they went yeah. in the water in, in 2004 or something. Mm-hmm. And there was a lot of excitement about them after about a decade because they showed they were showing quite a steep decline. But since mm-hmm. then, they've kind of been flat and even gone up again. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I guess part of the part of the our current understanding is there's lots of kind of variability in the AMOC. Um, so there may be this long-term trend hidden in there, but it's kind of buried beneath all this other stuff that's going on. It's kind of varying mm-hmm. on timescales from, you know, daily up to kind of decadal or whatever. And so it's hard to kind of really, yeah, to say definitively that there is any trend. Mm-hmm. But next to that, there's been lots of attempts to kind of use indirect measurements to say something about the AMOC. Yeah. And just to editorialize for a second, like just in case people aren't familiar, this AMOC is part of the whole system of current that takes heat from the lower latitudes and delivers it to the higher latitudes in the North Atlantic. So it's thought to be pretty important in terms of heat transport and keeping the climate of Europe kind of reasonably mild, you know, relative to what it it could be. Um, You know, there's, there's different ideas around that, but that's part of our kind of current understanding so it as we were just describing it hasn't actually been directly observed for that long you know there's been occasional measurements uh here and there of the kind of structure the temperature and salinity structure of the north atlantic from which you can kind of infer the currents but yeah we don't have much direct observational evidence um before this kind of this array came up well, I think you were just about to speak to that, like the kind of indirect evidence that we have or the kind of inferred evidence that we have. Um, yeah. yeah. So there's loads of, yeah, you're right. I mean, that's that's the kind of key thing we're interested in the AMOC is its role in heat transport, like you say. And so if it varies, then you can change the temperature of the North Atlantic and that has impacts kind of globally, people think, on you know weather and climate, basically. So that's why we're kind of interested in in what in what's going on. And I guess the worrying thing about the AMOC is people think it's like a tipping kind of component of the system. So it can very quickly change. And there's evidence from, you know, deep time that it's changed very quickly like in order of decades to kind yeah. of turn off. And so that that could be a big climate Paleo. impact, if you like. Um, yeah, which, paleoclimate which, evident from like cores, from like sediment cores and things and other ways yeah, of inferring. That, yeah, that's right. Yeah, and so like, you know, cores on the temp that tell you about the temperature of the north atlantic or mm. stuff like that there's been quite sudden changes um well sudden so it would still be sudden mm-hmm. in our lifetimes but it wouldn't happen overnight but um no yeah so that's why yeah. we're interested in it and yeah there's been kind of recent essentially paleo based evidence that um implies that the amoc has declined already um quite a lot since about 1850 or so um based on essentially proxies of what the sea surface temperature has been doing in the North Atlantic. Um, so on one hand, you have this kind of basket of studies, if you like, that say, well, actually, the AMOC's gone down quite a lot already. Um, and there's been some recent studies saying it's getting, you know, it's more likely to be a tipping kind of point 
which is obviously kind of quite worrying. Um, but the other, on the other side, in terms of kind of direct observations and, and kind of modeling, um, we're not really seeing that decline yet. Although it's worth saying, you know, we really do expect quite a big decline in the AMOC because of the greenhouse gas forcing mm -hmm. over the next century. Yeah. So we're in this position at the moment where we're not quite, you know, we have this large variability. Um, we think it's kind of internal natural variability. It would have happened anyway. Uh, but yeah, like I say, it may be kind of hiding this longer term decline, um, which right. is that's kind of the worrying bit about it. Yeah. Um, and on the other on the other side, like I said, you know the 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 models that we use to predict the climate are actually saying, well, the AMOC went up over the last you know hundred years. So we're kind of like in this position where we're like scratching our heads a bit um, hmm. and trying to work out what's what's going on, what's believable. I guess. Yeah. Yeah. So right now, the kind of climate change, the the effect of climate change on that current is difficult to detect it's not as clear of a fingerprint as we have in other components of the earth system necessarily, partly because it's so variable. Like you said, it changes on many different timescales, gets yeah. a little faster, a little slower, you know, maybe even kind of changes, not like reverses direction, but the, you know, position of different elements of it can change over time as well. Yeah, exactly. Um, so that's kind of one of the, you know, we say AMOC, oh, it's the AMOC, but the AMOC is kind of this, big integrator as well there's like you know it's part there's lots of different currents and you know the amoc isn't the amoc it it's not the same thing at every latitude you know in the high latitudes you measure one thing um and it's not obvious that the the amoc at you know lower latitudes in the subtropics is like doing the same thing at the same time even so it's kind of yeah it's one of those things which is maybe a bit too simple but obviously it's kind of on very long time scales it works you know like amoc mm. on centennial time scales like you know the amoc is the amoc but on yeah. our time scales from years to decades or whatever it's 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 a bit more confusing than that yeah, yeah. that speaks to the I, I like what you pointed out that one of our jobs is to try to come up with these integrated measurements of a really chaotic noisy busy system with spatial complexity temporal complexity and one of our jobs is to try to come up with integrated measures which tell us something about this, uh, how this whole thing works. And we can clearly go too far on that because every time you simplify, you lose information, right? You're you're getting rid of information with every average you take and every um, you know index you come up with. But if we don't have any of those things at all, it's going to be very difficult for us to understand how the climate system works, how the different components of it interact. So it's surprisingly subjective surprisingly like when do we integrate and uh, over what time period and you know where what kind of you can derive some of it but i i don't want to mischaracterize what she said but uh, helen uh johnson which uh i hope we get a chance to talk to her at some point but she mentioned at this access meeting that maybe uh maybe we're not going to find like a nice simple relationship between integrated quantities. Maybe this is too complex that we should be thinking about it differently. And I don't remember the suggestion, if she had a specific suggestion, but I thought that was an interesting point because I think we do get caught up sometimes with our like, here's the NAO index and here's the Gulf Stream and we should, and 
please, I know, John, you do a lot of that good work. So I, I, I'm sure you know the nuances of that. I'm definitely not trying to disparage that kind of work. And, uh, you know, I, I'm, I, it'd be great if you could speak to that process. Because that's something you do a lot of, right? You come up with, you, you test these measures, the integrated measures, and uh, you test the relationships between these integrated measures. You know very well, you've got this firsthand experience of when those things work well and when they don't. Is that something you can you can speak to? Yeah, sure. I think you know the one of the one of the things I would say to start off with is you know we always like to start simple because you know I, I certainly am kind of a simple minded person and you know I, so we want to understand the system in its simplest sense first and then kind of build on it. So yeah, we you know we take these large scale measures like like the NAO, like you say, Dan, and which is you know, a measure of the, essentially the strength of the wind speed across the North Atlantic. Yeah, the North Atlantic Oscillation in AO index, yeah. Yeah, that's right. And, it, you know, that varies on several timescales as well. And so, you know, we've, me in the past and lots of other people have done lots of work that kind of argues that a lot of the changes, these kind of decadal changes we've seen in the North Atlantic are consistent with what this NAO has been doing. So actually, you know, that, that increased, um, it got more positive, the index became more positive. So the North Atlantic got more windy from the 60s to the 90s, basically. And then it it went down, uh, it's come up again more recently. But so that kind of imprints a signal on the on the ocean, basically. So you're kind of cooling the ocean in the high latitudes, so you're kind of driving more densification, essentially, of the water, which drives the AMOC. And then you can look at um, model simulations and observations and there's kind of quite a big consistency um, between how ocean models if you drive them with changes in the NEO uh, represent you know the large-scale changes in abrosion heat and salt content basically and so that kind of you know on one hand that suggests that the NEO drove kind of a lot of these large-scale changes but then you know inevitably there's loads and loads of questions like these models that we use they're very low resolution. They don't have all the 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 kind of the processes like eddies or all these like very narrow currents and kind of lots of these processes that I guess Helen was mentioning. Um, and so you know you question whether these are we being too simple with these large scale, very simple kind of well fairly simple relationships between essentially NAO heat flux, AMOC, and then ocean heat transport. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so that's kind of interesting. And I guess we know, you know, we know from observations the North Atlantic Ocean circulation in particular in the high latitudes is is quite complex. There's lots of small scale currents and they all feed in together to kind of make up this AMOC, like I say. Yeah, one part of me thinks, you know, on the on the kind of scientific understanding, we want to know how all those little currents feed into this is AMOC. But from a modeling perspective, in some sense. You know, do we care about all those little features? We yeah. don't know, basically. That I guess that's the point. And they they may be really important, and they may, you know, we may have to have a model that resolves all these tiny little currents and tiny little processes mm. to be confident about projections. And yeah. but we might not. I think the balance of evidence is the models, the standard kind of resolution of the models isn't good enough. And mm. so you know, there's lots of worries about, especially projections of the North Atlantic whether you would, mm. you would miss something big or a big surprise, but we don't know. We don't know how far we have to go in terms of the modeling. Yeah. Yeah. Ted Shepard said that uh, this was about when the last IPCC came out, the IPCC five um, 
he said, well, we're actually really good at thermodynamics, but we're not so good at dynamics. Hmm. So we, we can make pretty, we can make very confident statements about, oh, there's extra energy in the climate system. And it looks like it's going to go into here, here, and here. But the like, kind of regional circulation is harder because it depends. Sorry, the regional projections are harder because they depend on the dynamics and just where that heat is transported. And that question of regional climate probably depends on those smaller scale processes a lot more, you know, than the kind of big integrated measure does. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. I mean, uh, the NAO is actually a good case in that, that point. I mean, you know, what, what will happen to Western European and even North American climate over the next 20 or 30 years is really dependent on what would happen to the NAO or the North Atlantic jet, basically, you know, winter, mm. if there's a big shift one way or the other. Mm. And, you know, I think, I guess that's been one of the exciting developments is that, you know, 10 years ago, we kind of thought, well, the NAO is just variable and we don't know what it's going to do. And we just have to see what happens. But, you know, one, one of the exciting things is this, what, well, what the Met Office calls signal to noise problem. Um, So actually it turns out that our models can predict the NAO fairly well, at least on kind of seasonal to decadal timescales. It's just that they predict this tiny, tiny little signal, basically. Um, right. So it's it's like 10 times weaker than it should be. But you get these skillful predictions. And if you if you kind of play games like, say, can the model predict itself, then it can't. But for some <laughs> reason, it can predict the real world. So it kind of – what it suggests is that there's something wrong with the models, basically, which isn't surprising. Uh, you know, the models aren't perfect. But – I mean, the exciting thing is it suggests we should be able to do much better at predicting those or, you know, saying something about the atmospheric circulation changes in the future. We just have to work out why the models are not doing a good job now. Um, and there's lots of hypotheses, but we don't really know. We don't have a good good reason for it at the moment. Um, yeah. Signal to noise. Yeah, the, the idea of there's some useful or interesting signal that we want in there that is hopefully detectable, but it's only detectable if it, it varies more than the kind of background noise. Um, I was just about to make an analogy with TV static, and then I realized that nobody watches TVs that like do the ch- you know fizzy static thing anymore. That's just not really a thing. <laughs> that, uh, yeah, I'm slowly becoming an old person, and all my references are dated to the 80s. Like, <laughs> I don't know what you meant, Danny. But <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Okay. I'm glad. Uh, yeah. So the, um, I was thinking about, uh, I hope you don't mind me saying, but like you're somebody who seems to be really prolific. Like you produce a lot of good stuff, a lot of good science. And I know you've, um, I, I've been really impressed by that and really kind of thinking, yeah, gosh, I would like to, um, be that productive or i'd like to do you maybe this is a rude question i don't know can you speak to that like what do you think because you seem to be involved with a lot these days i'm struggling to keep up with anything and i'm struggling to like you know be as productive as as i might like to be and kind of be as plugged into things as i'd as i'd like to be and there's various reasons for that but yeah i don't know so um is it we talked about this once before and you kind of talked about, you know, your, your collaborators, like your network of collaborators and that you're working with a lot of good people. I guess that's gotta be, gotta be a part of it. At least that's, you know, what you mentioned last time, but, uh, 
I don't know. I'm just, I think it's, it's good. And it's cool to see that it's working for you. Like you're clearly, you're plugged into some system that is working and then you're, you're doing good work within that. Is that something you can speak to or is that too big of a, an area? Well, I, I can try. I mean, for, first of all, thank, thanks for, you know, some kind words about, yeah, you know, good work and being productive. Um, yeah, I mean, you took you took my answer out of my mouth a bit. I mean, you know, the main the main the main thing to say is, you know, I've been lucky in working with some some great people. So, you know, people who've worked uh, with me or for me, I guess, postdocs and stuff, mm-hmm. um, and and also kind of international collaborators and and stuff. I've also been really lucky in that. Um, I should say, I should. I've been really lucky, and I've never had to really move outside of my science area in in mm. some sense so i've always had that continuity i've never had to jump around um but yeah i don't know what to say about it really i mean you know i i try my best i guess um you know i try not to work too hard and i always feel mm. you know i always feel like i'm doing a terrible job personally and so you know it's <laughs> it's nice to look back and see all those those papers and you know i i think when we talked about it before danny i was saying you know they're they're kind of one of the they're certainly one of the proudest achievements in my work life um yeah um i don't know if there's anything to say about it other than that really other than you know i've just been lucky to work with some good people and you know there's lots of interesting questions you know i I, yeah i don't know what to say more about it really sometimes work comes easier than others i would find like sometimes papers take forever to write and the questions or what for whatever reason it might be really good science but it's just really like difficult to actually get it written and get it done like I've basically just had a two-parter accepted that I've been working on for three and a half years that has been like the most effort I've ever put into any kind Mm -hmm. of publication and it's Sometimes it just is really difficult. Or you hear people talking about work that they started 10 years ago that's only just starting to get published. And other times, you know, you can, I'm not going to say bosh it out, but like it seems <laughs> to flow more easily and stuff just happens because you've got a great collaboration and a great partnership. The science just seems to work out or for whatever reason, it's low hanging fruit and it ends up being a really fruitful avenue. But yeah, no, it's true. Sometimes it's easier than others. I'm not to downplay obviously your your incredible effort and all the time you've put into it, I'm sure. But yeah, sometimes yeah. it's hard I mean, to prepare yourself though, isn't it? Because you often see people and like you said, you don't necessarily feel like you're prolific, but from the outside, <laughs> I mean, yeah, it can it can often feel and seem very different from two perspectives, can't it? Yeah, it can. And I think you're you're right, you know, I've had many, many papers that have taken many many years to get submitted and and get finished and then you know something comes up you know a nice little idea that that kind of takes a little time to do and I guess you know if I if I wanted to say anything that sounded strategic about it you know the the key thing is to to recognize those kind of the low-hanging fruit I mean that's that's like kind of the key you know the key thing is to be able to recognize that I guess I should say, yeah, going back to Axis, I mean, Axis has been really good for my publication record, obviously, because, I, you know, it, it was just, it kind of forced, it forced my name and face out there much more, if you see what I mean, than, than it would have done before. So that was, you know, I when I first took on Axis, it was the science program manager role. It was like, you know, I, it wasn't what I'd planned, to put it that way. It was, you know, I'd, 
I, I had to take that role because I didn't have any other option at the time. Um, but it did kind of lead to lots of, yeah, lots of collaboration at the end of the day. Yeah. That's good. Yeah, though, that's good. And also one of the things I've been trying to do, I've been trying to get better if I'm leading a paper at like delegating certain parts of it, asking for help that it's okay to ask your co-authors to do stuff. That's what they're there for. <laughs> I was oh, yeah, exactly. a co-author when I don't get like told to do things. It's like, what do you want me want from me? Yes. <laughs> Copy editing yeah. I can provide, but I feel like there's more. <laughs> mm. Yeah, definitely. Do we want to talk about some of the other uh, projects that you were involved with? Is there anything else? I mean, do you, first, is there anything else you want to say about Access? And then if not, do we want to talk about, you're involved with a couple others I see. I'm kind of snooping around your website a little bit. Yeah. Is there anything else I want to say about Axis? Good question. My boss would probably say that there should be, um, <laughs> but I'm trying to think of anything now. I mean, no, I think we, we kind of touched on, I mean, there's, lo there's loads of stuff I could talk about Axis, but um, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's been good. And I think, you know, like I say, just to reiterate this kind of collaboration across different, different groups of people has been really good. I mean, I, I've always felt in a slightly funny place because I, I work for the National Center for Atmospheric Science, but I'm essentially an oceanographer. Um, <laughs> I kind of, I, 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 well, I say that I'm not a proper oceanographer like compared to many mm. other people, but, you know, I work on the ocean's role in, in the climate. So it, it's good to kind of have that collaboration with the kind of people who kind of consider themselves proper ocean modelers and proper whatever, right. but also kind of have that link back to the, the atmospheric side in and yeah, like the composition. So that's, that was really cool. Yeah. And you know, if people want to know more, there's, there is a website. I don't, I think it, it might need an update, but I think there's a web, there is a website that one could go to. Um, and I, you know, there's also going to be a synthesis paper coming out at some point to kind of describe everything that came out of Axis. So keep your eyes out, keep your eyes peeled for that. I think it's still in, in preparation. Um, me and uh, Rachel Sanders are involved with at least a little bit of one of them. So I think that's still in prep, but it'll be coming along at some point in the future. So you're also on this uh, Wishbone project. Is there anything, can you tell us about Wishbone? Yeah, so um, so there's a couple of projects. NERC has this uh, program called the Changing North Atlantic Program. It funds three projects, and I'm, I'm lucky enough to be involved with with two of them. Um, so Wishbone is a project I lead. Um, it's on, um, what's it, what's the acronym stand for? It's like the wider impacts of the subpolar North Atlantic on the atmosphere and ocean, something like that. Um, yeah. Decadal variability on the ocean and atmosphere. Yeah, thanks, Danny. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, um, so that, I mean, that's sort of what it's about. I mean, it's the names on the tin kind of thing. But um, yeah. so that that that's kind of what we're looking at. And, and, and the reason to, I kind of said the motivation before, but, you know, this, the subpolar North Atlantic is a really intriguing area because it has this huge multi-decadal variability, basically. And it's one of, on decadal timescales, essentially like one of the most, or is the most predictable place on Earth, essentially. Um, and that broadly comes back to the fact that the ocean heat transport we think is important and the ocean varies slowly so you get this mm. long predictability um and so the thing is is you know like how important is that variability does it 
is it important? Can it influence the atmosphere and how, and, um, you know, how does it influence the lower latitudes, et cetera? So those are all kind of questions that we don't fully understand. And that's, that's essentially what that project's hmm. kind of working on. So that's up, that's kind of around Greenland and Iceland and, um, kind of over towards the Eastern part of the basin as well. The subpolar kind of like roughly Canada and northwards is, is kind of roughly where it sits more or less. Yeah. Uh, so it's about 45, 45 degrees North up to about 65 degrees North. So kind of like, yeah, that's kind of where it is. So that, yeah, the bottom of, or well, a little bit further south than the UK to kind of Iceland area. And yeah. um, that's, yeah. And there's a big kind of wind system there that tends to, it's kind of spins up this subpolar gyre. Now, the way that the wind is oriented, it uh, has something called curl, right? Which mathematically is sort of how much of a spin could this thing induce? Could this wind induce? And that, through a couple of different mechanisms, end up, well, not, I don't know why I said a couple of different, I mean, you know, there's the big one. Wind stress curl <laughs> spins up the subtropical, subpolar gyre, excuse me. And so you said that that gyre is kind of the thing that's evolving more slowly or over time, that that's, that's easier to predict. Well, yeah, so that's what we, we think. So, so if you look at upper ocean temperature, say, or... Um, yeah, you kind of, you get this huge, if you look at the skill, so how good the, the predictions, decadal predictions or whatever do at capturing this, well, the globe, it's always the kind of area that sticks out as a massive bullseye, basically, where you get much better skill. Um, I guess I should say quickly, these decadal predictions, they're, they're kind of like weather forecasts, but mm-hmm. using climate models. So that, you know, you initialize, yeah. you put observations into the ocean, you start these models um, and they kind of carry on. You, yeah, you force them with changes in external forcing. Yeah. Um, and you get, yeah, you can evaluate how good they do. Um, yeah, so this this region, subpolar gyre is kind of interesting because so the gyres, which I can't remember what gyre means, but it basically means big spinny thing, basically. Yeah. Um, yeah. They're kind of like the main ocean circulation, large-scale ocean circulation, you have these subtropical gyres and the subpolar gyres. Um, the North Atlantic subpolar gyres is interesting because, yes, the wind stress curl is really important, but actually it's also kind of forced by buoyancy as well. Um, so that's changes in heat and freshwater fluxes. Um, and so essentially, I, you've probably heard this phrase before, the Fermi-Halland circulation. Mm-hmm. Um, so essentially that it's playing a role in the subpolar North Atlantic as well. And actually we, I guess our, our kind of primary hypothesis is, is that kind of thermohaline circulation, which is kind of key to deliver this, this large persistent decade of variability and also the, the predictability mm. um, rather than the wind stress curl, but they're linked, right? Cause the, mm. you have a stronger wind, go back to the NAO, the NAO is more positive. You have stronger winds, you have stronger curl, but you also have stronger heat loss. Um, so they, they come together and actually that's also part of the fun of the fair, if you like, about trying to understand, you know, what what is what is the important process, what's going on. Yeah. I liked your distinction about the timescales there. That on the kind of decadal timescale, this region is pretty predictable. Because as you'll know, work from like Simon Josie and some work that I'm involved with with Rachel Sanders 
has investigated a couple th- this particular really cold anomaly in 2015 or so, kind of around 2015, 2016, where a particular part of the subpolar North Atlantic got really, really cold, like you know, record low temperatures. And that seems to have been driven by heat flux, by air-sea heat flux, really extreme, like really cold winters, and a bit of re-emergence, which is where you can kind of store a cold anomaly underneath the mixed layer underneath the surface part of the ocean where it can just get retrieved the next uh, next time the mixed layer dips down into this cold pool. And there's some work by Elizabeth Murren that shows that this sort of event is seems to be really hard to predict. She looked at like the some of the NCAR models to try to work out how predictable this sort of thing is, and it's really difficult to predict, actually. Um, but it's an interannual anomaly, right? It's something that just happens some years and not other, not very many others from what we can tell. So it's it's cool to think about predictability versus timescale. Yeah, it could be easier to predict a decade, much harder to predict any particular year. And eventually, this is kind of why we can do climate change predictions at all, right? Because we can predict things over decadal, centennial timescales on those kind of average timescales. But we're not as good at predicting a particular year, particular season even. That's much harder. It's more, more chaotic, more sensitive to small adjustments the small you know changes in the system so it's uh, at some point you separate those two enough and that's that's weather versus climate right weather is day to day and then climate is that kind of longer term average the kind of statistics of the the weather um i just wanted yeah. to make that your point as well yeah <laughs> no i think it's a good point i guess i'll add a flavor of kind of an extra little flavor of subtlety there is that you know on the key the key problem with the kind of that seasonal time scale is predicting the atmosphere. Uh, so to go back to what we were talking about earlier, there is some predictability, but it's teeny tiny little signals. So unless you can predict that big atmospheric circulation anomaly, you're not going to predict those interannual surface heat flux. Anomalies. Oh, yeah. Whereas on the ocean, because it, or at least parts of the ocean evolve much more slowly, not all of it, but if you're able to, what essentially what you're able to do is if you can stick in these thermohaline circulation anomalies, they persist uh, for like up to a decade or so. Mm. So that's kind of why you, you're able to get that extra skill um, in terms of the ocean. Obviously, you know, predicting the ocean is fine, but what we really want to predict is the atmosphere, right? Because that's what we experience. And, you know, you, um, yeah. so so that's the thing. And then obviously, as you go to very long time scales, that's when it becomes a boundary value problem. So you don't, you're not really worrying about the what you're initializing into the system this yeah these kind of ocean or atmospheric circulation anomalies they're not relevant anymore well they're not they are relevant but they're not as relevant yeah it's this kind of boundary value problem they've been integrated out yeah the i forget where i heard this first maybe it doesn't matter too much it's just a phrase that's around that weather is an initial value problem and climate is a boundary value problem that's kind of one one way to think about it yeah exactly yeah so that's what i meant when i said that decadal predictions are like a, a weather forecast on on uh, for climate if you like so it's the initial value problem is is uh, well we'd like to think it's as important as the boundary kind of changes it's, it's probably not actually but uh, <laughs> or it is in the subpolar gyre but everywhere else it's probably a boundary value problem but um, yeah yeah, yeah. It, I, I, that whole framework is really useful if you've ever studied partial differential equations <laughs> and, 
And I realized that's maybe one of the subtleties we have to get across when we're trying to communicate this stuff to folks who maybe haven't, that's not something that's been in their life experience. So yeah, like getting, getting that sent that idea across. I always liked the, there's another visual metaphor that I really like to, and, and thank you for that subtle nuance. That was cool. By the way, I like that. I like that addition. That's all right. This visual metaphor of uh, that, Yan Zika first told me about this, where uh, climate, you can imagine a person walking the dog, and kind of where the person goes is the climate, right? That that's we kind of can project that a bit easier, and the dog kind of goes left and right and forward and back, sniffing things, picking up stuff, and it's much much harder to predict where the dog will go, but we know that the dog will kind of stay near the person and the dog will kind of stay near the person walking the dog. So we, we can't predict what the weather is going to be a hundred years from now on a Tuesday in March, for example, but uh, we can tell you what range it probably will be in. And that's, that's the kind of projections that are made that, well, we know the person's going to be uh, in a hotter part of town. Um, so the dog will definitely be hotter as well. But we don't know exactly how 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 hot or cold. That's such a good analogy. I love that because yeah, it's so it. visual. You can imagine a mad dog sprinting around, sniffing stuff, yeah. <laughs> whilst you're sedately strolling up the beach. But this the is my, myself envisioning envisaging <laughs> doing that. <laughs> I guess in the climate change story, the person is like walking towards a. It's not a cliff exactly, but it's <laughs> it's not. <laughs> Closer and closer to the rising sea. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> maybe that's it. Yeah, we need a visual metaphor where, like, well, it's, no, a cliff. I hope a cliff is not the right analogy. <laughs> I know there's some scary possibilities of tipping points and things like we were talking about with, with the AMOC earlier. Um, but yeah, hopefully it's more like Ella was <laughs> saying that it's just slowly crawling into the to the sea. Maybe we should change something and not crawl into the sea. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, how about, um, I'm just going to kind of jarringly take us back to the, your science projects. How about Snapdragon? Do you want to say anything about that one? Yeah. So Snapdragon's cool. Um, yeah. So that's like the sister project, if you like, of, of wishbone. It's got a cooler name. Um, Subpolar North Atlantic processes, dynamics and predictability of variability in gyre and overturning. And you all have done the thing where in some of those words, the second letter is part of your acronym. <laughs> acronym battles these yeah. days. Everyone's so running out. So <laughs> Yeah, so they're kind of convoluted. <laughs> I'm not a great at, I was really proud of Wishbone, actually. I'll put that down. <laughs> I'm not cool. very good at good at um um well, acronyms. Snapdragon's yeah. certainly very evocative. You know, that's like I, I got there's a you can have a logo <laughs> and that's good. That's yeah, it's a good yeah. definitely a good yeah. name. Yeah, that helps people latch onto it because they can picture the you know a dragon or the logo of it, and that gives them something to psychologically attach to that project, which is good. That's useful. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. So, so actually, while we talk about acronyms, if you don't mind, I'll quickly talk about Wishbone just a bit more because actually, sure. Wishbone, I, I'd come up with an even more convoluted acronym, which was for Wishbone Ash, which is a famous, uh, well, not famous actually, it's a a a prog rock band from the 1970s from the uk um and and i was really pleased about this um but one of my um collaborators vetoed it so uh, 
because <laughs> oh, no one else would know what it was. But I had this kind of, yeah, let's, let's have all project names named after like classic rock bands or something. That would be cool. But anyway. I'm on board. <laughs> Please find Led Zeppelin. <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. How can you not find Led Zeppelin? Do you hate Led Zeppelin? What's wrong? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Led Zeppelin. Yeah, that one, that would be a good one, actually, Led Zeppelin. Or Judas yeah. Priest, does <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> that Led Zeppelin is a horrible geoengineering project. That's like a terrible idea. Yeah. <laughs> of like, you want to put lead in the ocean? What? <laughs> anyway, so yeah, that, that's a cool idea. I, I'm, I'm sad somebody vetoed it because, like, it's actually fine if nobody knows what that is. Like, it's okay. <laughs> like, yeah. Well, it, it's kind of like one of those things where, you know, I don't know. I don't know really. You know, it's just a name at the end of the day. Um, mm-hmm. I was involved with a project a few, well, a good few years ago, led by Piers Forster, which was called Smurfs, yep. um, and that raised a few eyebrows at the time. Um, Brilliant! But that was pretty cool. Well, I like Smurfs. Uh, yes. Great name. Yeah. Piers, Piers is definitely the kind of person who could get that across the finish line of like, no, no, come on, we're doing Smurfs. <laughs> yeah, Smurfs. Definitely. Come on. <laughs> yeah. So Snapdragon, yeah. that that's really cool too. So um, yeah, so Helen Johnson leads that. Um, nice. And that's that's particularly about understanding basically processes and mechanisms of how subpolar AMOC changes. So that that's what that one's focused on. And it uh, and both of these projects, I should say, they're both funded by um, what's it called, the Fund for International Collaboration. So they both kind of got a UK component. That's the biggest part. And then and they both have American collaborators. So it's it's really cool, kind of having this transatlantic relationship, especially over the last couple of years where we've all been stuck at home. It's good to kind of see see your collaborators and stuff yeah so that that's really fun and yeah i'm really excited about well both of those projects they're both about mm. well, about a year in so they've both got about two years nice. to go yeah mm. awesome you said you led you're leading wishbone yeah yeah i'm the yeah. pi of wishbone scarily enough yeah oh yeah how's that going well how's how's uh how's life as a relatively new pi i'm kind of doing that too so i'm trying to figure out what the heck that means how to do that really yeah so when you find out how to do it let me know um <laughs> yeah um no it's good i mean uh yeah no it's it's really fun i think you know we've just been we've been meeting every kind of couple of months online and i think you know we're we're kind of reaching the limit of what you can do collaboratively by just by only meeting online like you can mm-hmm. you can do a lot no doubt but it, you kind of miss out on a lot of the yeah just the kind of the normal kind of the, the everyday human conversations basically like what did he say or you know what's she talking about kind of stuff you know and, and the other stuff like that um not just that obviously but um but yeah you know it's, it's kind of all part of parcel like you know did you see this paper or or whatever um so yeah it's been good i think you know it's been it's been a, it has been a bit funny like starting and leading a project like you know i think we started just as we were going back into lockdown in the UK like mm. last winter or whatever. So yeah. it's a bit, yeah. So it's, it's been all right. And, um, but yeah, it's, it's good fun. I think, you know, I, I'm definitely someone who thinks about, you know, I like to think about the science um, and I don't necessarily do some of the other PI things. I like think about the impact or the, or whatever and, and stuff. And so, you know, science wise, I think it's going okay. And, and, you know, we probably have to think more a bit about how, you know, to get the message out, if you like. Um, hmm. But yeah, yeah. I think there there can be, depending on what happens, there can be a bit of like 
advocating for your people and making sure your people are being treated fairly and they have the resources they need. And there can be a, a bit of that work as well, kind of trying to lower lower any barriers in the way so that people can do what they need to do. Um, yeah. yeah. So I think that that seems to be part of it. That's what I'm learning is like, ooh, I, I do on occasion have some barrier smashing to try to do. <laughs> so I try. Uh, so we, uh, if there's other science bits you want to talk about, let, let us know. Or Ella, is there any science stuff you wanted to talk about? I thought we typically will start talking about kind of people's pathway into science, which is another fun area to, to talk about about now. But Let's there's nothing to Yeah. How about you, John? Does that sound all right? No, that sounds fine. Yeah, sounds yeah. great. Okay. So where'd you grow up? Uh, where did I grow up? So I, I, I grew up in the UK, as you probably tell from my, or well, England in particular, uh, from yeah. my accent. Yeah. Um, yeah, I was originally originally from Swindon, uh, and then kind of moved down to near Southampton when my my dad moved jobs when I was a home teenager. Of the, home of the giant magic roundabout, in Swindon. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the magic roundabout. Yeah, um, it's the roundabout which has other roundabouts in, embedded within it. it. Has level layers of roundabouts. Yeah, <laughs> the roundabout. So it's basically. I think I don't, I don't know. This is like urban legend, I guess. My, when I was a kid, it was like you know you were told. There used to be one big roundabout, and there's like, I guess, like five or six roads that come onto this roundabout. Mm. And um, there used to be lots of accidents there. So they decided to turn this one big roundabout in and put five mini roundabouts around it, basically. Mm. And so it's it's pretty novel. So you can go you can go around this roundabout whichever way you want, as long as you follow the rules, obviously, for a mini roundabout. So you can go around a roundabout, you know, left or right, whichever way you want to go. <laughs> I don't drive, so um, I haven't tackled that monstrosity. But, um, yeah, it's it's pretty amazing to watch. Yeah, it's pretty much Swindon's most famous thing. <laughs> oh man! And your, so your dad moved to Southampton, and then yeah, your family did. Yeah, near Southampton. Yeah, when I was uh, thirteen. Um, yeah, so then I was, was there. He, what was he up to? So he is a biochemist, or was a biochemist. He's retired now, mm-hmm. um, and so yeah, he worked for a pharmaceutical in swindon and that shut down had to find a new job and then yeah and so we moved to one like a smaller discovery he was a smaller discovery based place yeah just north of southampton and yeah that was that really yeah, yeah. So, so science some science was around ever any like science chats at home or is that more kind of work stuff that would just stay at work and he would come home and be be dad yeah it was <laughs> mainly we didn't really talk about science at home i must admit um and yeah so my dad was like um well i don't i don't want to sound rude to my dad but i mean yeah i guess he would he he was kind of very much on the the technical side so doing doing experiments and stuff but not not kind of like you know the planning you know different things or whatever so it's um yeah and uh, hit some bench skills some lab skills some yeah exactly and you know he was pretty good at it so that's why you know he did this for his whole career basically um yeah, until he retired. So, and he was really happy doing it. Yeah, there's a whole private sector. I've started to meet people who like work in that kind of industrial chemistry or industrial biochemistry. Or, uh, I mean, it doesn't sound like your dad was necessarily doing industrial stuff, but I just mean, yeah, there's a whole commercial you know, element to that, which I've got to admit, I, I'm trying to learn, but I'm I still have a poor sense of like, 
it's 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 bad i have a bad sense of like what do you do outside of academia i know there's loads of stuff to do there's loads of like excellent careers there's I a just, whole other just, world out there danny i know <laughs> i'm curious sometimes but yeah I, i've got a very poor sense of it but I'm, i try to learn I try to, I yeah but it is a massive problem i think you know like i i have no idea what i would do outside what i do now and it and you know it, that is quite scary actually like <laughs> yes <laughs> yeah it is right yeah because right now our jobs keep us kind of um, I mean, this can work okay, but right now we, we have to, to move if we want to like stay in the same field. Sometimes it involves a big move or at least like moving institutes, for example, these days, and that could be very disruptive and it would be nice to maybe not have to do that. Yeah. <laughs> but also like leaving academia is like leaving something comfort, comfortable and familiar. It's like a nice little blanket that you surround yourself with like, oh, hey, it might be a little bit toxic in some ways, but it's fine. It's my toxicity. I know exactly how to deal with it and manage it. And then, you know, if you wanted to, you know, take the plunge and do something, I don't know, different, then it's kind of challenging. Like I've been threatening to leave academia for about five years and I'm still here, but I still think about going freelance and just being like, right, I'm going to take the plunge, going to do it. Yeah. But yeah, all of those things. There, there is a whole other world out there, but it's just, yeah, it can be a bit scary and daunting. Yeah, I think so. And maybe until you do it, maybe. Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> That's actually something I would really like to do is I would really like to talk to more people who are kind of out there, like doing science type work in the private sector. Um, you know, Ella, uh, Chris Jackson, whom we talked to a little while ago, it'll be a previous episode, you know, whenever this comes out. So he's moving into the private sector, actually. So that's that's exciting. It'll be cool to see because I think he's a person who's always been very, very open. And to, to, I guess to the extent that his, uh, he's able to, it would be cool to like learn from him about what's, what's that experience like and you know, how did you find that opportunity? And I know we're, we're a bunch of academic people talking about like <laughs> what do things look like on the other side of the, the wall? But yeah, I, I don't know. I think it's, it's probably something that I wish we could give our like students and other people in the field, a better sense of is like, well, here's, here's some different paths you could take. Um, we just don't know. And I don't, I don't think that's great. Actually. I think we should have a better sense of what that looks like. But yeah, uh, I totally, totally agree. I feel completely, yeah, I'm not ill-equipped to kind of give students that kind of advice. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, and, you know, I, I've always been, you know, I love science, so that I'm not, I've never really thought about, you know, going back to what Ellis was saying about, you know, toxics and stuff. You know, there's always times in your job where you feel, yeah, actually, this is rubbish, and I don't <laughs> like all this stuff. But actually, mm. I do really love science, and like, you know, I do feel really lucky. I feel really lucky to do kind of to have been doing. I never expected to be in the game for this long so kind of and the longer you stay in the game yeah it gets worse and worse you think basically <laughs> all, all i'm really good at is like you know giving comments on people's papers <laughs> a new set of skills <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. i'm really good at uh, i'm really good at track changes <laughs> yeah, exactly yeah <laughs> i could be in latex overleaf and word <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh, I did take that joke from somebody. I can't remember who it was. It was at a it was at a Smurfs meeting. Actually, you mentioned Smurfs a little while ago, and oh, we were yeah, all going around the room. Involved with Smurfs, Danny. Yeah, of course. Uh, a little bit, a little yeah. bit. I, I at least went to some of the meetings, and then like um, Emma Boland uh, just submitted actually a Smurfs related paper that that I'm on. So I at least was 
involved with like dis- discussing it and talking about it and thinking about it. Um, I didn't do any actual sit down work in terms of me calculating anything for Smurfs, but <laughs> I was kind of around on that one. Um, but yeah, I was at a Smurfs meeting and we were all introducing each other, going around the room, like, what do you do? Um, and most people were like, I'm an oceanographer or I work in atmospheric science or climate. And we got to a senior scientist. Um, I think his name's Matt, Matthew. Ah, shoot. I'm sorry. If you're listening, he's not listening. If you're listening, (laughs) (laughs) sorry, but yeah, he's a, he was a more senior scientist and that was his answer. He's like, uh, I I do track changes. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Was it Matt Collins? Yes, that was it. Thank you. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> yeah. So I took that joke from Matt Collins, and I think it's great. It's brilliant. I I look forward to using it every overusing it <laughs> every opportunity I get. <laughs> yeah. How about your uh, your your mom? What, what was she up to? Yeah. So my mum, my mum and dad met at at work. So my mum was kind of like a um, a lab technician, I guess, um, back in the day. And then, you know, this was back in the early 80, uh, 1880s, I was going to say, the 1980s. I'm not that old. This is an exclusive. Are you, can you prove it? Can you prove you're not a vampire? I can't now? prove it, no. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in the 1980s. So, yeah, my mum my mum quit her job to look after the kids, basically. So she's mm. not, you know, she's had... Yeah, lots of different jobs since then, but not working in science since then. But yeah, so that that's kind of where where she came from. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So in Southampton, what was that like? I've been a few times. Was it okay place to grow up in terms of the teenage years? Yeah. So I lived in a place called Romsey, um, which is just north of Southampton, um, yeah. and it was a terrible place to spend your teenage years. Mm-hmm. There was nothing to do there, basically. Um, right. Yeah. yeah nothing. Um, yeah, ironically, I would love to live in Romsey now as like a, you know, an almost middle-aged person. But um, yeah, as a teenager, I hated it, really hated mm. it. Um, yeah, I hated school, hated everything about it. Mm. Um, yeah, and then that was that until I moved to Reading when I was 18. Uh, pretty much. <laughs> so just, yeah, I got to get out of here. And <laughs> yeah. Reading was your was your way out. Yeah. That's that's something that I'm, I live in Camborne, which is a village at the town outside of Cambridge and it's the same sort of thing, right? Like if you have a, a young family, it's perfect. Like it's just, there are parks, you know, it's got loads of good schools. It's safe. It's got um, everything you, you need on a kind of day to day basis, but we do have bored teenagers here and it's understandable. Yeah. There's just not that much to do. There's some sports stuff, but you know, not every teen's into sport. So, you know, it's, it's, it's okay sometimes for the kids who are into sports and things, but yeah, as as they get older, it's kind of like yeah, there's not really much to do in in Camborne. Apart from um, and drinking strong in the park. That and uh, occasionally they will set fire to something oh, like a, a nice. What's <laughs> <laughs> on <old> bonfire? <laughs> yeah, occasionally somebody will set fire to something. Um, yeah, it was white white lightning, not strong in my day, but um, yeah. Showing <laughs> my age there. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Oh man. So Reading, what took you to, what took you to Reading? Uni, basically. So um yeah, yeah so I, I, I was actually reflecting on this last week. So um yeah, I've been in I've been in Reading twenty years this September, which is scary, actually. Wow. Um yeah, so I, I came to do undergraduate physics and meteorology and I stayed. I did a PhD 
then postdocs and then yeah and uh, here i am today <laughs> you're like yeah the one percent of the one percent of the one percent like <laughs> pretty much like, yeah how the heck did you do that <laughs> it's really yeah, amazing i don't know <laughs> <laughs> it's definitely not like something anybody can necessarily aim for because so much of it is just what opportunities happen to be around you know at a given time right is that fair to, is that fair to say you just like part of it is those opportunities. I mean, there's there's got to be some like making the opportunities for yourself as well, but some of that's out of our hands. Can you can you speak to that? Yeah, sure. I mean, so when when I was looking for degrees as an undergraduate, I I really wanted to do meteorology basically, um, um, but I decided to do physics physics in Met just because you know I wanted to be broader. I wasn't. You know, at the time I was really interested. You know, I, was, I, I love volcanology, I love climate, I love all these things. So I do physics and met basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I always had this idea I want to do science, but actually you, I kind of realised at some point that I didn't really know what science was. Like you kind of the way this is how I've always felt about it. But the way science is taught to you when you're a kid, you know, science is taught as fact, and you know, like doing science, you kind of. People, I, I kind of get the feeling that people imagine scientists as like, you know, kind of like wizards or whatever sat around and they go, you know, this is the answer kind of thing. Um, <laughs> and that's not what doing science is at all. Um, and it's, you know, it'd be much more boring if that was what it was. <laughs> um, yeah, so I was mm. I was lucky enough in in my undergraduate, I did this summer placement actually, um, working with oh, Keith yeah. Shine. Um, like an eight-week research placement, and I, I really got the bug. Basically, I was like, "Yeah, this, this is, is fun. I really like this." Yeah, it was really lucky. I was like, "It's from the Royal um, Royal Meteorological Society, and they they actually paid me like like I guess it was like twelve hundred pound or something like yeah. to so to cover my rent and stuff." Do they still do this? Because I, I don't NERC, think so. Right? No, because I know NERC does. NERC still does ones that are intended to bring in people from like physics and chemistry. The kind of uh, some of those like quantitative disciplines into the earth system or environmental sciences. Um, so it sounds like that was a similar scheme that they stopped doing, huh? Yeah, I think so. Um, yeah, I don't think it happens anymore, but yeah, it was, it was great. It was, yeah, it really got me hooked. Um, and so then, yeah, you know, you look around, I knew I wanted to do a PhD in climate and, you know, there was, there was a few places I could have gone, um, but yeah, I, I chose to stay in Reading. Basically, I got offered a PhD. I didn't actually get offered a PhD the the first time I applied. I kind of had to come back, kind of cap in hand. But I got I got on a PhD, and yeah, and then my PhD was in decadal climate prediction. Well, um, <laughs> and I really I really liked it. It was it was a great time. It was kind of like right at the early days of that kind of part of the field, and so I was quite quite lucky in that sense Hmm. um yeah and then when it came when i finished i finished that in 2010 well yeah 2010 and um yeah you know i due to a a mixture of factors scientific and personal it it just was best for me to stay in reading basically yeah yeah. um well good i'm glad it worked out (laughs) yeah yeah, it's a pretty boring story, actually. But <laughs> <laughs> no, but I did like, I mean, part of what I liked about what you've told us is that, you know, you didn't really like school, you didn't like where you were living, that that wasn't so 
good for you. Like that wasn't a good fit for you, but that you found this other path, you know, you found this other, it ended up being an academic one and a scientific one. And I think that speaks to something that comes up all the time is just how bad of a predictor, like, you know, teenage years, academic performance, that's a terrible predictor for like, what's that person going to end up doing? (laughs) And I think, uh, yeah, sometimes there's too much emphasis put on, put on that. And, you know, instead of kind of grinding people down with test results, we could instead like take a longer view and say, well, we should try to support people now, try to help people now and try to learn new things with the view towards like, yeah, maybe their whole teen years, they might not really be into this and really plugged into it or like, you know, enjoying it. But eventually let's keep the view that they'll find something, they'll, they'll connect with something, they'll find the subject they're interested in. Hopefully they'll find a community. They'll hopefully find like a group of people they can plug in, plug in with. Um, I don't know, just a random thought for, for me <laughs> there. And I, th- I think about yeah. that because I do have my kid's 10. So he's about to enter this kind of, you know, teenage kind of gauntlet years. And I, I'm trying to think about how to best to support him through that basically. Yeah. I mean, at that t- that age is tough. I kind of think, you know, you, it, there's so much going on, like, personally like as a person you know like so much change and so many so many new pressures obviously don't have to go into it but i guess everyone knows what they are but um yeah it's a tough time and so if you're not enjoying yourself you can really not enjoy yourself let's put it that way um and you know i guess lots of people i know say oh yeah that was one of the weird things when i came to uni there were people like oh yeah i missed school it was the best time of my life and i was like oh my Mm. god i was so glad to leave (laughs) I hated it. Um, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, it, you know, and I, I did okay at school. It's not that I was doing terribly. I did okay. I guess one of the things, the funny things is that I would say is I was actually predicted a C for physics, um, predicted C, target C, which I never understood. Um, and I was like, what? I got an A um, and then went and did, you know, A-level physics. And now I'm basically, you know, I am a, an applied physicist, basically. So yeah. it's like, I don't know what the hell that was about. Like a bad day for the teacher or whatever. But Can yeah, you know, that, teacher. yeah, but you know, I think, you know, that kind of thing, that's the kind of thing about school is it can come across as like really arbitrary sometimes. Like, you know, there was, like, what was the point in, oh yeah, predicting that target C, you're not going to do better than just pass physics. It's like, well, I'm in the top set for physics. I don't really understand this. Sometimes you forget that teachers who seemed like the ultimate arbiters of the rule of law and authority when you were that age were actually just fallible human beings. And knowing lots of teachers now, like my friends who are, you know, in their early 30s or even when they started in their mid-20s, like, how are you in charge of children? (laughs) How do you know anything? I don't know anything. You can't know anything. And the kids... (laughs) You, when you're a teenager or a kid, you just you think they they that's it. That is the law. The the teacher yeah. knows. Yeah, they, they yeah. know. It's yeah, something yeah. you learn as an, as you get older in all scenarios that everyone is winging it the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah, that's okay. It's hard to convey that to a kid that that sense of like, well, this is an imperfect person. Yeah, okay, they're in charge of the classroom, so you know, ultimately, you know, that's their responsibility. And they can probably do that better if you work with them. <laughs> they can probably do that sort of thing better if you could. But that, that might be too subtle of an argument, <laughs> possibly. Yeah. yeah. It, it takes time to wrap your head around that one, I think. 
so you you've got a, a family now, right? You've got how many kids? I know you got at least one, right? Was it? Yeah, just one. Just the one, one. Yeah. How old? He's four now. Yep. Right. Yeah. No, I, I remember. It, it feels like a long time ago, but yeah, I remember kind of around when. I think you you took some time to some paternity leave at some point. I seem to recall. Yeah, which I think is so so great here. So as somebody coming from the U.S. system where we're just sort of expected to get right back into it. No, luckily, I had a very supportive, um, effectively, boss at the time. My, my advisor was super supportive and understanding and didn't didn't mind that I needed to take extra time away to, to be a parent and to adjust to parenting, which was so important. But yeah, I love how here it's kind of enshrined in the, the law. <laughs> they have to do it. Your employer has to do it. I know it's maybe not perfect in some ways still, but... Um, yeah, so I, I just, whenever I see somebody doing that, I think it's really healthy and good. I'm like, oh, thank goodness <laughs> somebody's taking some time because it's such a huge adjustment going from being, you know, um, just responsible for yourself and, you know, maybe one's, one's partner or a couple other people, um, just depending on what your circle looks like, to like a human, a small human who needs you for everything and will for a long time <laughs> for many years. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. how's, how's that been the experience of like adjusting to parenthood while you're adjusting to be a P being a PI? Oh yeah. Let's throw a global pandemic on top of that. <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, tiring mainly. <laughs> um, yeah. So just, just to, to be clear. So yeah, I took in the UK, you get like two weeks um, statutory parental right. leave immediately after um, the birth of your child. Um, or the adoption or whatever but um and then we have this option of shared parental leave so i took uh yeah about two and a half months off uh, when my wife first went back to work um yeah so when my son was like nine months old i had two months off then well actually i say two months off i worked one day a week basically yeah um, yeah. yeah and that was amazing you know i think um yeah i mean it was hard work um but it was amazing to be able to do it. And, uh, you know, I kind of think from a, you know, from a diversity and inclusion point of view, I mean, that's, it's really important that like, you know, or, or not just the, the birthing partner, but the, yeah, you know, the other partners take time off too. And, yeah. and yeah, it was great. I mean, you know, I, it was hard, but obviously I look back really fondly on that time. And, you know, it's kind of funny because obviously, you know, you, you have all this, idea i'm gonna do we're gonna do all these things when i've got this time off and then and then you know it's <laughs> you spend the first kind of couple of weeks just adjusting to like getting used to like the you know the idea of, okay i have to give what was it this time and sleeps at this time and you know all this sort of stuff and then it's just like well we'll just hang around at home and <laughs> sit yeah. in the garden kind of thing but yeah it was amazing and um yeah, I think, yeah, he has been a terrible sleeper. Um, so, yeah, you know, I think, yeah, the idea of kind of carrying on as though nothing has changed um, is just remarkable to me. Like, yeah, my, um, my son started sleeping through the night. Um, and by that, I mean he only gets up once or twice when he was about three and a half. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's it's been a long road, and um, you know, and, and with all this other stuff, and then obviously the global pandemic as well. So it's yeah, it's been tiring, but it's been fun. I mean, yeah, yeah, 
you made it. Look at you're still here. You're you're doing it. Well, exactly. <laughs> I've survived this long. Yeah. Yeah. Well done. <laughs> well, yeah. Well done to anybody who's made it this far. Yeah. Uh, no matter what your life configuration, for sure. Yeah. Because um, it's hard. It is hard. Yeah. I don't know. I kind of made this joke at the beginning of the podcast, or kind of half joke about like, yeah, life still feels impossible. I don't know. Some days it kind of still does. Some days I can't get anything done. Some days I can't like get myself together. I mean, it's not like it's a total disaster, but uh, I don't know. I'm still, I'm still struggling a bit. It's not easy. Um, But I mean, part of it is like now I'm, I'm solo parenting right now in terms of physical presence. So Mm -hmm. that's been a big adjustment lately. And my son's going to a new school. So it's, uh, it's just me and him over here in the UK at the moment. Um, okay. so that's, that's been a huge adjustment for us. Um, we'll, we'll get there, but you know, we're, we're okay. Me and him, it's just that there's now, um, kind of more stuff to do, right? Just more. And it, it's hard to balance it all. Um, but yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll figure it out. And I've got some more people coming in who are going to work with me. And, you know, we were talking about asking your co-authors to do things, and then when you're a PI, sometimes that's the role is like, well, I've got some funding. I've outlined some work. Here you go. Can you can you do this, please? And we'll collaborate on it. And, you know, you put your vision into it as well. Please, collaborator. But uh, I, I think that might be what it that, – that's kind of what things are starting to look like. Is like, well, I don't have that much time to sit down and do my own work. I can still weigh in on other papers and projects. And I can still, um, you know, try to – connect people with resources and try to lower barriers and things. But my work is much more fragmented, I would say. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's how it goes, unfortunately. And I think, you know, um, you know, there's, there's some months when I'm able to kind of, you have to be quite um, protective of your time. So there's some months Mm -hmm. when I'm, I'm able to kind of, you know, get, well, get a lot of work done. So I actually submitted a paper last month my first offer paper it was the first Ooh. first offer paper for a couple of years i was i was very pleased it was a paper that i targeted to submit at the end of 2020 and that that didn't yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah it felt really good to get over the line and you know i really had to be quite protective of time you know like yes. just kind of block out whole days um but yeah this since i've done it i haven't done any research just because i'm now having to catch up with everything <laughs> project management and everything else yeah yeah exactly yeah yeah i think you're totally right you have to predict your time block out spots in the calendar that's part of why i was so upset when my desk broke because it broke before a day i didn't have any meetings i had the whole day blocked out to work on this paper (laughs) my stupid desk breaks i had to waste a couple days fussing with it anyway it's fine i've fixed it now (laughs) it's okay Uh, so yeah. Is there anything else that you want to talk about? We've covered, covered a lot. We talked about various projects that you're involved with, your kind of pathway into science, kind of what science working in science looks like for you. Um, any other bits you want to make sure we, we cover? Well, so one thing I was wondering about, or I had been reflecting about, as I said, I've been reflecting about that. I've been in Reading for these 20 years. I don't know, um, if you want to talk about anything about, because there's this general idea that you have to move around in science, right? And I don't know oh. if you want to, if that, if you want to talk about that, like whether it's been <laughs> good right. or bad being right. in Reading all this time. Um, 
I remember hearing that advice from like one of my history professors that in academia, it looks better if you move around because you get exposed to, presumably you get exposed to diverse ideas. Mm -hmm. Um, I could see that argument, but maybe that's less important now that it's easier to work with people collaboratively, you know, in different cities, different countries, different continents, easier to do that. So it's probably less important to kind of go physically spend time in other places. And honestly, I don't think you should, ideally one would not have to sacrifice like your entire life, every aspect of your life should not just be determined by academia, right? It's a ridiculous requirement to make, Mm -hmm. to make people uproot their entire life every two years just to tick a box on a CV. It's completely Mm -hmm. callous. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I I completely agree. Um, (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I completely agree. I mean, you know, I make friends. Well, yeah. Do you have any kind of social life? Beyond that. Yeah. No, absolutely. And it takes a toll on you, like moving constantly, starting over again. Exhausting. Honestly. Yeah. That that's honestly been, been brutal. Like, so between 2003, 2013, my wife and I moved every two years doing the academic thing and it was different states, you know, it was moving states every time up until 2013 when we moved countries. So we would typically make, you know, two or three friends. They would just start to become really good friends and then it was time to go. And we're still friends with those folks, but it's, it's different because we weren't able to fully be in each other's lives. Um, you know, there's people in Colorado and there's people in Kentucky and Georgia that just, um, we, we still are fond of them and they're fond of us, but we just weren't kind of integrated into you know our day to day in the way that can be really lovely to be. Um, yeah. And kind of here we have some friends now as well, but uh, yeah, no, I, I totally agree. So like, yeah, I think you're, you're totally right, Ella, especially in the era when, you know, it's easier to remotely work with people, then you can get exposed to different ideas and have different contact networks. Yeah, absolutely. Hmm. I'm glad yeah, you brought so, that up. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I guess things have changed. I hope things have changed. But yeah, certainly when, because I applied for and didn't get a NERC Independent Research Fellowship. And it was definitely... The talk beforehand was definitely the, the kind of the general idea was that, you know, uh, you're going to struggle because you've just been in Reading all the time. And it definitely yeah. came up like both in yeah. the reviews and and my interview. Now, whether that tipped the balance, I've no idea, of course. Um, right, you know, right. I, I can't tell you that, that that stopped me from getting a NERC IRF compared to other stuff. They're very competitive, as yeah. probably everyone knows. Um, but yeah, I'd, yeah, I kind of. I think, you know, these days it is easier to collaborate. So I think, you know, maybe people can get around that more easily by, you know, collaborating. Make sure you collaborate with someone who's not your PI, basically, but, you know, just Zoom with them every couple of weeks or whatever and and get something done. Yeah, Yeah, definitely. You might have to be a little more proactive about that, possibly. Just make sure you're doing that. Make sure you're reaching out and making those other other connections. Um, Yeah, well, the IRF thing, I don't know, the research independent research fellowship, the NERC one, um, the round I went through, I was awarded this UKRI future leaders fellowship that I'm on. And I didn't even get an interview for the NERC IRF one. Uh, and it was a very similar proposal. So that shows you some of the randomness in the, <laughs> in the right there that illustrates some of the randomness in the fellowship process of, you know, 
same proposal. <laughs> okay, the schemes are a little different, but then you still need to have like a strong science package put in place there. So it gets funded in one, doesn't even get to the entry stage in the other. There you go. There is some some stochastic noise in the system. And the signal to noise problem is a tricky one for that process. Yeah. Um, yeah I like um there's uh I've I've heard it's a really healthy attitude. I think it's healthy, honestly, that, well, I'm going to apply for stuff and try to stay in academia, but I kind of refuse to be drug around by it. <laughs> like, if, if it can't support me, I know somebody who lives in Cambridge, and they're like, no, I'm, I'm staying here. I'm going to live in Cambridge, and they're going to try to stay in academia here, but they're totally willing to walk away and do something else if if it can't support them in the life that they want. And I, that's healthy. I don't know. I think we got to get away from this culture that expects you to totally sacrifice yourself at the altar of, <laughs> of, of science. It's not, uh, it's not good. It's not practical either. Yeah, I agree. And it, it kind of comes, it comes from an older time, right? When, you know, academia wasn't so diverse. So, you know, maybe, you know, it was easy for certain people to travel around because they had no ties to anything, but mm -hmm. it's definitely harder for other people. And, you know, there's loads, there's loads of personal reasons why someone might, might not move or might mm -hmm. want to stay. The problem is, of course, is that I think, you know, to go back to what I was saying is that, you know, I think most of us are here because we are, you know, really excited about science. That's the thing, you know, you want to do yeah. science. And so that's, that's kind of the, the, un, the unfortunate bit. So you kind of want to be there, but you know, there are lots of ways to do science at the end of the day. Um, you know. It's true, yeah. And I'm I'm still uh, I'm a big proponent of you know if people move into the private sector and if they still want to call themselves a scientist and think of themselves, oh yeah, please no, you like that's your training, that's your background, that's your skill set. Like you, I think people should own it and <laughs> keep it. Yes it's you you know if, if somebody feels like it fits them then it fits them yeah definitely cool that, that was a great that was a great point to bring up how about you ella anything else you want to talk about and i think that's uh also a really good point i'm glad we covered that it's uh it's something that it, as you may be able to tell infuriates me <laughs> as well mm -hmm. i mean i i spent uh all of my post-university career living in London and commuting to various near-ish London places yes, yeah. <laughs> including Cambridge and Reading so uh, yeah I also am reluctant to to move around for a job because ultimately it's just a job yeah. even though you love what you do it is just someone using your labor value to convert into some other kind of value <laughs> Yeah. yeah, and uh, yeah, it's it should you shouldn't you should work as a, as part of your life. It shouldn't be your entire life. I think so. Yeah, thanks for bringing that up, basically, John. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, absolutely. No, it's something we should talk about. And honestly, when we make those applications and things, I, I don't even think we should be asked to justify that. I don't even think we should be asked to like, well, why do you want to stay at the same institute? None of your business. <laughs> Back off. <laughs> I like the people there. <laughs> that should be fine. That should be should be good enough. Well, John, thank you so much for spending some time with us and chatting about science and your kind of pathway into science. This was really fun. I really enjoyed talking to you. 
uh, you know, I've known you, I feel like I've known you a long time and I, I always enjoy chatting with you. I always enjoy um, just hearing about your science perspective and your life perspective and just, yeah, always, always have had a good time chatting with you. And uh, Ella, thanks very much for being here and being a, an amazing part of the podcast. Always appreciate it. Yeah, thanks, John. It's a shame we never got to meet in real life whilst I was actually in Reading. But <laughs> yeah, well, that's what I was about to say. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, sorry we never got to meet. Uh, hopefully, we'll meet again at so. some point. And yeah, yeah, and yeah. Thanks for having me, and good to see you again, Danny. Good. Well, have a great weekend, both of you. And, and uh, you. yeah, take care, and talk to you later. Ciao. Bye, John. Bye, John. There you have it. Our conversation with John Robson. Thanks very much, John, for taking some time out spending some time with us and telling us about your research and about your pathway into science. You can follow John on Twitter at John I. Robson, and you can find the podcast, of course, at Climate SciPod. You can find me at Dan Jones Ocean, and Ella Gilbert is Dr. Underscore Gilbs. So, yeah, okay. I just want to take a few minutes to express some gratitude I'm glad that I could come out to the University of Washington. Glad I could come out to Seattle. Uh, thanks to uh, Allison Gray and uh, for being such a good host for helping me in terms of setting up a temporary desk space and giving me a seminar slot. Uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to that. It's happening, happening soon. By the time you hear this, it will have happened already. So, uh, yeah, I'm just talking now. Don't mind me. I'm a little bit envious. Folks here get to do oceanography while they look at the water. That's amazing. I mean, there aren't many buildings, there aren't many institutes in the world where there's this much of a breadth of oceanography going on underneath one roof. So, I'm, uh, yeah, I'm just grateful to be here. Okay, I hope you're doing well. Take care. And we're still on a monthly frequency, roughly. Talk to you later. Bye-bye. <laughs>